Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 92. My name is Christopher Luft, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with Gerald Osier, the driving force behind Simply Cyber. But first, a word from the sponsor of this show, Lima Charlie. My name is Maxim Lamad Brassard, and I'm the founder of Lima Charlie, the company behind the SecOps Cloud Platform. Cybersecurity tools today need to evolve from the one size fits all silos into a modern tool set to adapt to the specific needs that you have. The SecOps Cloud Platform works by providing you with full access to the underlying security tools and infrastructure. Everything's on demand with no minimums, no contracts. It's an approach that's really like AWS has done in IT. We offer a full-featured free tiers, no credit cards, no contracts, nothing. Get on the platform today, deploy an EDR, start ingesting logs, build a product, start an MDR, an MSSP, whatever you can imagine. We're making security flexible so you can build what's possible. You can learn more or get started for free at limacharlie.io. Thanks for being with us on the show today, Jerry. It's a real honor to have you here. Oh, thanks so much, Chris. I can't wait for this conversation. Yeah, on the off chance that people don't know who you are, can you briefly introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is uh, Jerry or Gerald Ozier. You could probably find me that way, the more formal title. Uh, I've been a cybersecurity practitioner for about 20 years. I love cybersecurity, whether it's working in cybersecurity, talking about it, uh, teaching about it, learning about it, doing labs. Um, you know, my wife, who's not a cyber practitioner, probably could sit for the CISP at this point. Um, and I basically love it, love it, love it. A lot of people might know me from my work with Simply Cyber, which is um, it's a YouTube channel, but it's more of a community of, you know, thousands of cyber practitioners who are sharing information and support and helping each other with resources and ongoing activities. Um, and there's tons of like live streams and YouTube videos to support all that. Um, also, um, you may know me from my school. I have a, um, a a school that has courses in it. The most notable one is my GRC Analyst Masterclass, which is where I spent the bulk of my career was in GRC. Um, so I, I made one of those courses because, frankly, there was no good content or training out there for GRC, and I felt like such a heel when I people would ask me for good GRC content. I was like, "Go read NIST," so which is no good for anyone. Uh, and all, I do all that. And then like I moonlight, I'm also faculty at the Citadel Military College uh, in Charleston. Very cool. And for those listening or watching, I'd like to point out that we've known each other for quite a while now. I think Lima Charlie was just starting to get some traction when you started Simply Cyber. I don't think I was even getting a paycheck yet. And I think you had about 5,000 followers on YouTube, which really impressed me at the time. But I think you're north of 100,000 now. Yeah, yeah, we passed a hundred thousand about uh, two, three weeks ago, which is phenomenal. I, I've got the little silver play button coming in the mail, and uh, yeah, Chris, we've known each other for several years. I've I've really loved, honestly, watching you and Max and Le and Lima Charlie just blossom from uh, a really cool idea, and you know, moving forward, and then just blowing up. And now uh, people are all seeing what I saw years ago about how awesome that platform is. Yeah, it's been a pretty incredible journey, and uh, yes. Super honored to know you and the the whole team at Lima Charlie. Like everything's um, kind of surreal and how well it's going. So anyway, uh, I'm always interested in people's Genesis story and just curious how you got interested in technology and how you turned that into a career in cybersecurity. 
Yeah, um, I mean, I won't go too far back, but I always had an interest in in technology and and you know puzzles and stuff like that. I was kind of a um, you know good at math and, and when I was younger and stuff. Got the computer, hacked around on it, you know, just naturally found an interest in things. So like, I'm 44, 45, I'm, I'm somewhere around that. Um, you know, like 2600 magazine, if you remember way back in the day, um, and then BBSs like the Jolly Roger and stuff, uh, where you could like. I don't know, like dabble in uh, hacking and whatnot and learn these things. And I always found it fascinating that there were these like creative ways to break things. Now, you might think that that makes me interested in pen testing or offensive security, but it really wasn't to me. It's just I'm more of a, I guess to say, uh, an academic like I appreciate. And like I said in the intro, I love everything cybersecurity. So I just appreciate that th- this can be done. And, and frankly, I'm not very good at thinking outside the box. I'm more of a conformist. So it's very um, intellectually stimulating to see when people can do stuff like that. So I always had an interest in that. Went to school um, in the late 90s in InfoSec, even though it existed in like the military settings and stuff, it really wasn't a discipline like it is today. Uh, so I, I went in computer science. There was not even a cybersecurity course uh, like as part of my curriculum. Um, so when comp sci, I, for some reason, I thought the only job you could get with a comp sci degree was software engineering. Looking back on that, I didn't have mentors or people I could talk to and figure this out. So I was just like, Oh, I gotta be a software engineer. Went, went on, became a software engineer after graduation. And this is the best part. I was working for the, um, uh, the Pentagon or I was working for the Marine Corps at the Pentagon and I, uh, auditors came in and audited my software for FISMA compliance, which is like a federal security mandate kind of standard. And uh, I had built my software to requirement, which is like what a software engineer does. Like, here's the client's requirements, you build it. And and, uh, the client hadn't put any security requirements in, right? So I failed this audit, which pissed me off, Chris, because like I hold myself to a high standard. I like doing quality work. And I was told like basically my products was terrible. And I'm like, this is... This is not right, you stuff suit, right? Of course, I'm like this like anti-establishment software engineer, like the tie is undone and the, you know, because I had to wear a suit. But I was like, this is bullcrap. So they show me what they tested on. And I'm like, oh, I see, I see. So I, you know, I was like, this is cool. I put all the things in I was supposed to, but then dug deeper into it. This is the 853, the NIST document. And I was like, holy macro, like this is crazy. And uh, I reached out to, I worked for a very large consulting firm at the time. So using what I would consider about as hack as I am I going to get from an offensive security perspective, I went into the global address list in Outlook, sorted by manager and above, sorted into the cybersecurity um, business unit, right, or, or book of business, and literally you know, copy paste emails. Hi, I'm, I work in the, the Pentagon office. I, I do this. I w- would love to talk to you a little bit about cybersecurity. I just don't know enough about it. And I'd like to learn more. I emailed probably like 50, 60 people. A couple replied with some information and resources. One guy agreed to get on the phone with me. His name was Ray Sturby. And I got on the phone with him and he gave me a plethora of, of resources. He expanded my mind. He blew my mind. Um, I didn't know what a vulnerability scanner was at the time. And I was like, holy crap, like you can just point a scanner and it'll tell you everything you can exploit on that box. He's like, oh, yeah. So I was hooked from that moment on and then launched my career, went on, you know, got advanced degrees in cybersecurity, started working in the industry. And, you know, now I'm just flipping out all over the place about it. Well, shout out to Ray Sturby, wherever you are. Uh, you, you lit a fire. Yeah. 
well, researching for this interview, I learned something about you that I didn't already know. And I'm bringing this up because it's one of the big items on my very short bucket list. And that is that you got to do cybersecurity work in Antarctica when you were doing some work for Booz Allen Hamilton. How did that opportunity land in your lap? And what did you do while you're down there? Yes. So you may not know it, but there, you know, the National Science Foundation has research facilities in Antarctica. And because of that, those are government facilities that are required to comply with FISMA, going back to FISMA. So someone's got to go down there and audit them and, and do the, you know, the independent validation of the controls and stuff on the systems. And some of those systems are not networked back, like they're kind of closed systems up there. So uh, I found out uh, that Booz had that contract. I was working for a, a Veterans Affair contract at the time. I did. I applied everything that I tell everybody in Simply Cyber all the time. I applied every one of those tricks. I found who the uh, the manager was over that project, like who owned the contract. I took her out to lunch. I told her about who I was. I asked her questions. I didn't try to sell myself into the project. I told her all about me, asked her all about her, asked her what kind of work they were doing. Amazing, fantastic. I then um, stayed close with her, stayed close with her. Someone quit um, on that project and I knew about it. Um, I immediately emailed her and told her that I would be interested. She said, perfect. I, I don't have to think about backfilling this position. Thank you, Jerry, which is exactly what that was. That was the move. Like you're, I'm like in the ready waiting. And yeah, thanks, man. And I hopped in and instantly took off and you know, basically once a year, you'd have to go to Antarctica. I would, uh, I, you know, I did quality work so I could like jockey and get seniority as far as like me going versus like the new guy or whatever. And I went to Antarctica, uh, three different times, oh, wow. uh, once through, uh, you, you, and you may not know this either, but like once through, uh, South America and you take a boat from the tip of South America to, um, there's like a, uh, there's like a peninsula that kind of comes out of Antarctica and there's a small, small research station there called Palmer station, which is my favorite place uh, in Antarctica. And you take a boat through the Drake passage, which is also the most dangerous waters in the world. Or if you're going to go to the South pole and McMurdo station, which is the largest station in Antarctica, you fly through New Zealand and then you hop a flight to McMurdo. And then there's uh once a day flights flying to the South pole. And uh, I spent 36 hours at the South pole and did did cybersecurity work. And the final thing I'll say before turning it back to you, Chris, one thing that, uh, or two things that you may not know. One is uh, Antarctica is like wicked mountainous. So like when you fly from McMurdo to the South Pole, you're flying through um, like these untouched wild looking mountain ranges. And South Pole is actually something like 15,000 feet. And uh, you fact check me Wikipedia or whatever, but it's something very high elevation. You may think that it's flat and it's not elevated, but it is. So when you land, you're coming from sea level and you land at 15,000 feet. So you haven't changed your acclimation. So when you get off, you're like breathing shallow. I remember I got off the plane. They immediately took us to lunch. Lunch was hot dogs, right? So we're not eating escargot or something down at the South Pole. And uh, I was eating a hot dog and I like literally had to take a break halfway through the hot dog because I was exhausted. I'm like, dude, eating this hot dog's killing me. And they're like, yeah, you got to pace yourself here, man. Oh, wow. That sounds amazing. We'll have to talk about that uh, at some point in the future in more detail, but it uh, sounds like quite an adventure. It was. Yeah, it was. So when I have guests on the show, I like to dive into an area of their expertise. And I was thinking we could talk around issues related to building and navigating a career in cybersecurity. Does that sound all right to you? Yeah, that sounds like a great one. Love helping people. Okay, so I mean, the first one, is there a talent shortage? Is there a talent shortage? No, 
there's not. I think that's like such a myth that's pushed out. The, the, there's there's a problem, right? So talent can manifest in many different ways. And I actually heard um, Meryl. Um, oh my god, I can't think of her right, name right now. Um, I'll, I'll get it um, later. But she she's known for purple teaming. Um, I I don't know. Why I'm blanking. But anyways, she recently said in a talk like cybersecurity, like working in cybersecurity. It's like Meryl Vernon. It's like working in science, right? Like you don't like you might say I want to work in science, but like that's not enough. Like do you want to do molecular biology, rocket science? Like those are two way different disciplines and it's very similar cyber, right? Like oh, I want to do cyber. That's cool, but like what? Red, blue, engineering, architecture, leadership. Like what do you want to do? So, when you say talent shortage or this 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 uh, myth that's being pushed out there, there's a couple things going on. One, it's like you need to define kind of the vertical that you're saying has a talent shortage versus just overall wiping the whole industry with this um, label. And then secondly, and we're getting better at this, but like businesses don't quite understand um, cyber and cybersecurity from a hiring perspective. So they, you know, there's there's definitely a disconnect be- between um the role that a business wants filled, which is like a unicorn role, and then the oper- the the potential candidates that can fill that role. And part of the shortage is there's not a million unicorns running around, right? That's why they're unicorns. They're rare, if not non-existent. So the talent shortage is this disconnect between reality of what businesses want versus what candidates can provide. Uh, you know, I think there's a ton. I see people all the time. There's a ton of great candidates out there who are putting in the work, learning the skills, um, and, and, and ready to rock and roll. And, you know, basically that this is why I tell people that networking is so important because, um, if you're going through the front door, there's two problems. One, you're applying with like 10,000 other people. So you, you're just like in the noise. And then two, you're, you know, you're, you're applying for this job. That's like a unicorn role. So then you're going to be competing with people who are either more senior than you that have lost their job because of a recession or whatever, and they're just willing to accept that, uh, or, or other things, right? So you're, you're, you're running into this wall, basically. So the, the trick or the, the technique that you should really be employing is uh, networking to find out about opportunities before they ever uh, get listed. Like in, in like the Booz Allen's uh, South Pole story, like that's, I mean, that's exactly what I did. Like they would have push that uh, rack out to find someone. And I just shortcutted it uh, before it did. So yeah, I don't think there's a talent shortage. I do think there is talent shortage in very specific disciplines, like detection engineering, I think is a very advanced skill. And, you know, some people can do it, but I don't think that there's a wealth of people that can do it. I think there's a lot of people who just depend on um, d- uh, the default signatures and the default um, detections that come with platforms because they look good and they work. And, you know, the sales guy said bells and whistles went off. Uh, but, you know, true detection engineering, that's that's a skill where I would argue there probably is a talent shortage. But in general, uh, I do not think there is. Yeah. And the problem with those rules that come out of the box is that they're very noisy. And so instead of elegantly solving those problems you're just throwing people at it to go through the alerts and make sure nothing malicious is happening when a good detection engineer will lower the false positives and make those rules much more precise yeah well and that introduces a problem that we see it's like it's so short-sighted it's like pennywise pound foolish like yeah you can throw a, a bunch of humans at a bunch of money uh but you're gonna grind those people out you're gonna burn them out you're gonna cause mental health issues where if you really just took time 
and either invested in some of those people to level them up to be detection engineers or hired, um, you know, kind of a, a professional services to come in and understand your business and do detection engineering, you would the long term realize better benefits, you'd have happier employees, you'd have actually better detections and a better cybersecurity posture. But again, you're getting into the situation where I mean, there's a million different things, right? Like the CIO is dictating budget and like, oh, we've got people, so let them do that. A CISO might come from less of a technical background and not fully appreciate. They're just like, oh, no, we've got people handling all the alerts. At the end of the day, it's inbox zero, so we're good to go. And not having that foresight of a larger program and you know security um, improvements. Um, I think you just touched on it a little with the networking advice, but do you have general advice or some like first steps for listeners right now who might be trying to break into the field? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not, I mean, this, okay, so yes, I do. I, and I get asked this question all the time, Chris, to the point where uh, I, I wrote an ebook and it's absolutely free. So I'm not making money off this, okay? It's just, I answer this question so often that I literally documented it and made it available for people to download. So if you want, if you go to simplycyber.io slash book, You'll be able to download it, but I'll just tell you um, some some first steps. First thing you need is like IT fundamentals, networking and operating systems, maybe a little programming. Cyber is an entry level job in that there are roles in the industry that require less skill, less experience, less time to fill. It is not entry level in that you cannot understand IT and and be able to get into it. Right, and not all the roles are technical roles. Right, so there's different levels of pre requisite knowledge in IT to do it but you you if you don't understand how two computers talk to each other i mean it, you're going to have a problem right because that's what we're dealing with here 90% of cyber attacks are some threat actor getting into a computer they're going from one computer to another so like that's foundational and then operating systems you know equally as important cuz those are the endpoints that are getting popped that's what people are working on right so get your IT at least at least a foundational, right? Now, another thing that I would tell people, and this is a little um, maybe not obvious, is I, LinkedIn is a huge social media platform. In 2024, Microsoft bought it a few years ago, ramped it up, and now it is the digital online lobby con, mark, you know, conference place, whatever. And you know, they 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 experiment with events and audio only chats and stuff, but for the most part. Having a LinkedIn profile that looks professional, that's indicative of who you are and what you can deliver to a business, and a couple of other things that are like best practices is huge because everybody, and, and we're humans, so like let's be real about this. If you apply for a job and you make it to an interview round, whoever's going to interview you is typing your name into LinkedIn to see what you look like or who you are, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's just human nature. Like, oh, I'm going to meet this person. Let me look them up, Right. And, you know, maybe they used to do that on Facebook, but I feel like we have evolved uh, to the point of like, we not respect personal, but like, we're not really interested in the person. Like, we're like, who is this person on LinkedIn? So if you don't have a LinkedIn profile, it's kind of sus. They're like, what, what is going on here? Um, and then third, the final thing, and then uh, I'll throw it back to you, Chris, is like I said before, you can't just say, I want to work in cybersecurity. Like, what do you want to do in cybersecurity? Being a GRC analyst is an entirely different experience than being a penetration tester. And so are all the skills to be successful at those two jobs. So you need to go to the buffet and take a bite out of every dish, even if one doesn't look delicious, 
and taste it and see, do do I like this or not? Do I want to know more about this? And once you find that dish that you like, before you get all amped up, and people make this mistake, so I definitely want to uh, highlight this, before you get all amped up and like strap on a helmet and put a rocket on your back and light it and just go, be real. If you want to work in the industry, look at what the current job market is dictating for that role that you want. You could be picking a role that either A, you're not going to qualify for because it's an advanced role, the detection engineer. Or maybe you're picking a role like pen tester that is super saturated and you're not going to be able to you know, get a job or penetrate or you you can't find the job, right? People, like I see this a lot with certifications, right? Like they're like, should I get this cert? I'm like, I don't know. Are people hiring for that cert? And, you know, so do the due diligence, right? Like I know it would be wicked awesome to be a pen tester and it's the coolest role according to... Hollywood. But can you get a job doing that? Can you get paid doing that? Is it for the top 1% lead hack source only? Uh, maybe maybe the dish that you kind of liked, the dish that you could eat every night, but it wasn't your favorite dish. Maybe that's a better dish to get every night because you know that you can get a job at an MSSP as a SOC analyst working third shift, right? And then grind and work up from there. Yeah, and you just kind of mentioned it there, and I know it's specific to the role that people are trying to fill, but are there any like uh, trainings or certificates that newcomers should be considering? I know it's really hard for them to navigate because they don't have the knowledge and there's lots of different options out there. Yeah, of course. Um, Again, so depending on what you want to do, I mean, actually, I just released a video on Simply Cyber's YouTube channel. If if you if you link to it later, Chris, that'd be cool. But like, basically, what I would do to get in, yeah, I'll put I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. So it's like what to do in twenty twenty four to get a job. But I base it on different roles. So again, you need to know what role you want. Unless you don't know what role you want, then you have to go and get a little bit of training in each one until you make that decision. But if you try to do all the roles, you're going to burn yourself out and not really be a master of any particular skill. So for me, if you're going to go, um, you know, the first thing, again, I'm not affiliated with CompTIA in any way, but the Security Plus certification, it's a great entry-level cert, and it's one that you will see on many, many, many job applications. And HR doesn't understand cybersecurity, so they use it as a gate. Do you have it? Yes or no? No, you're in the trash. Okay, so right there, that's going to give you some fundamental experience across all the different domains in cybersecurity, and you're going to get through HR gates. Now, the next thing, that costs money though, right? So let's talk about some things that can get you um, free education. There's platforms like um, Hack the Box and Try Hack Me that, you know, they are paid platforms, but they do have free elements of it that you can do and get experience. There is a website called malwaretrafficanalysis.net where it's basically this guy, he's posted all these packet captures, which is basically network traffic. And he's got little challenges for him. They're all free. So like you can learn to like discover and do hunting and analysis like a blue teamer would, right? Mm-hmm. Um, another one, this is one of my favorite ones. Eric Capuano released this blog post called So You Want to Be a Sock Analyst. Hands down one of the best, most practical um, guidance, you know, follow along labs, whatever you want to call from a guy who's like lived it for decades on how to build a, a simple little lab with an attacker machine and a victim machine in a you know commercial grade, not not like completely coincidental that it's Lima Charlie, Chris, but a commercial grade EDR solution that doesn't cost money for a couple agents. You have a, you guys have a free tier, so like you can literally build this thing and then throw attacks, detect attacks. You can do detection engineering, which I already told you is an advanced in demand skill. Like you can do that, and it's just phenomenal. 
um, that you can you can do these things and then obviously level it up from there. Also, I want to share another one. I just I made a video that's coming out uh, on January 12th that'll probably be released by the time this goes to air um, on how to set up a simple sim lab. The people over at Elastic built like they give a free trial of their whole stack, which is like a Kibana stack. And a lot of people get hung up building an elk stack and managing it on their own server. They've pushed it all in the cloud. So like literally you just set it up and connect agents. And I've got a great little lab on basically setting that up, data visualization, alerts, dashboards, all that stuff. So, um, you know, it's really choose your own adventure. The only one that is really tricky, okay, for free uh, is GRC analyst work. And it's because GRC analyst isn't really a super technical role. It's more about engaging with the business, the end users, understanding uh, business impact of situations, setting risk models, the governance of the of the cybersecurity program. So, you know, for that, I mean, not to, again, I wasn't planning on this, but like my GRC analyst masterclass, I literally wrote that class and I've had multiple people um, go on to be very successful because they were uh, learned the stuff in that class. I wrote that class because I didn't have a good answer for people. So, you know, again, there's a lot of great opportunity. And, you know, I, I, I'm actually given a keynote speech in um, Wild West Hackenfest this October. I'm, it's like a huge honor to be asked that by the Black Hills Information Security Group. But my I've already started like brainstorming because I feel like massive pressure doing a keynote speech because I want to be like motivational and inspirational and all the things. And I think I'm going to name the title. Like we live in the golden age of cybersecurity education because I, I told you earlier, Chris, and if you're still with us listening to this podcast, like, you know, welcome to the party, pal. I just told you earlier, I had to open a global address list and basically cold call like 50 people because there were no resources for me to connect or learn or get access. And, you know, I basically had to like piecemeal it together. Um, I ended up going and getting a master's in information assurance in like 2006 or something just to get a formal learning on these things. And nowadays, I mean, between YouTube and, um, you know, GitHub and, and awesome lists and people sharing on Twitter and stuff, dude, it's like, it's so welcoming. It's amazing what's available right now for free. If you, you know, know what to look for and you know how to separate the trash from the good stuff, which is why it's so important to have a community. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. Lots of options there. Um, one of the roles you mentioned as like the sort of most advanced and sort of most in demand is uh, detection engineering. For somebody that wants to develop their career along that line, is there specific skills they should be looking to develop? Is it Python, Sigma, Yara, anything in particular that would help them be prepared for that kind of role? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. That is a great question. Yeah, I think like understanding some of the fundamentals around Sigma and Yara is good. But but I, I almost think you need to take a step back. If you're going to become a detection engineer, and honestly, some of the best detection engineers are former pen testers because they know what, what to do in order to do it. Because it's a senior level role, the things that I'm about to share, are, you know, not simple, but obviously it's the techniques and what you would do. Understanding how the Windows operating system specifically works, how authentication works within an Active Directory and environment and within a Windows operating system machine itself, how system calls, what system calls are made with a kernel in a Windows operating system, right? Because threat actors are abusing these type of things, right? And and honestly, like when we talk about detection engineering, I, in, I'm, not an, I'm not well versed in this, so I don't know if this is, if I'm 
if I'm uh, overstating this or not. But like when we talk about detection engineering, I feel like we're most often talking about tuning an EDR solution on an endpoint. But detection engineering, you can change uh, tuning on an email security gateway. You can tune a firewall. You can tune. It's like really anything that is configured to detect malicious behavior and you can tune it. Um, that's where detection engineering can go. So you could specialize in just the, you know, the Windows operating system. But if you're going to be more focused on gateway and stuff, then the operating system's less important. I would also recommend, so like once you figure out those things, I would recommend literally, so Eric Capuano's blog that I mentioned earlier, right? It Like this is why it's so valuable. So like, let's say you've got the little environment set up. Now you can throw some type of post-exploitation activity, right? Dump memory or create a, a malicious account or hide something or have, a, you know, word launch a command shell, like whatever, like whatever it is, go look at MITRE ATT&CK, look at how threat actors are doing things like axiomatically, then do it in your environment, right? This little tiny environment you built, do it. And if it goes through, okay, now, do some type of detection tuning on Lima Charlie or whatever platform you're using, but but be very, very precise about it. Don't do like 10 things and see what happens. Do one thing, throw the attack again. It's a lot of rinse and repeat. It's a lot of grinding. This is not an easy button. You're not just cracking this out in like a half hour with a pair of sunglasses on and the feet kicked up talking about how awesome you are. This is work. But once you throw it, it doesn't detect, reverse the detection, do another detection, throw it. And when you ca- catch it, you have successfully developed a detection. Now do it again, do it again, do it again. And I think, I think if you get into the pra- practice of doing this, you'll get better at it. You'll get faster at it. You'll get higher fidelity of it. And you could start sharing that. I mean, and dude, when I talk about networking, delivering value into the network is what is important, right? You don't know when you're going to cash in your 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 collateral or your capital or your chips or whatever you want to call it, but that shouldn't really be like what you're thinking about. You're not like, oh, I'm going to raise this bank account up so I can cash out at the end of the night. Like, just deliver value into it. And if you're pushing detection uh, uh, detections to a group, that's valuable. If you're telling people how you're approaching doing detection engineering, that's huge. And by the way, you'll start getting labeled as a detection engineer. You don't have to have that job yet, but people will look at you and be like, oh, Jerry's always writing these detections. That's cool. Like, let's run something by him. And again, you can even at a basic level, go look at existing Sigma rules, right? And then take your environment that doesn't have them in yet and try to create those tunes. Or actually, Chris, I'm sorry, because I'm doing this on the fly. Like, take existing Sigma rules and then put them in your environment. Like, Throw an attack, see it goes through, then take an existing Sigma rule, put it down, throw the attack again, see that it gets caught. Instead of trying to take it to the next level and write your own custom new detections, just use the existing ones and see how they work. Wrap your head around that. You should be able to look at a Sigma rule and say, I understand what this is going to do before you even put it in the environment. And then when you put it in the environment, it should validate what you've already assumed. When you've reached that level, you're ready to take it to the next level in in my opinion. Yeah. And I love the Sigma project, all the fine folks over there. Uh, Naz Benchercelli and his crew. Shout out to Naz. Nice. Um, yeah. So I guess one of the other ones I was thinking about, you know, for somebody that's maybe made their way into the industry already, but they're, like you said, working the third shift in a sock and they've been there for a long time and they're really not happy. What are the things that they can do to kind of 
move up the chain and what kind of opportunities are available to them? Yeah, uh, well, again, so one cool thing um, about cybersecurity, I mean, obviously, there's many, many cool things, but I'll cherry pick this one cool thing, is that our jobs, our industry, they're very matrixed, right? So like, you can be a SOC analyst and become a pen tester. You can be a pen tester, become a SOC analyst. You could be SOC and go to GRC because there's a lot of commonalities, a lot of common understanding. Um, so there is flexibility. So I kind of, I'll give you two things, right? If you're a SOC analyst and you're grinding away on shift three and you want to get to the day shift or get promoted to SOC two, right? So you want to stay in that, that career path. Um, you know, a couple of things. One, uh, make your management aware of it, right? Like I, it might seem obvious to just be like the high overachiever and like things will happen to people who do good things. You should keep doing good work, but you should have conversations with like, hey, like what's it going to take to get promoted? Like, tell me what that is. And if, and by the way, pr- pro tip from like a life of experience here, if they, if they don't give you a concrete plan or they just gaff you off or they say like, let's talk about it in six months, you may want to look for your next promotion at a different company. And I know that's harsh to say, but two things. One, you probably get a higher salary bump than you would getting promoted internally. And two, it doesn't sound like the company you're at is necessarily thinking about or interested in your promotion as much as you are. Okay. Um, and obviously look at what the SOC 2 people are doing. Go pull a job rec for SOC t- uh, a tier 2 and look at what the requirements are. That should be your your plan. Like, oh, I'm working towards this, right? You don't need someone to tell you what a SOC 2 does, you, or a SOC 2, not to get it confused with the compliance. Like a, a SOC tier 2, you can go pull a job rec, or hell, go pull a tier 3. Like, go, go look at a digital forensics. Like, whatever you want. Go look at the job you want and start getting those bullets under your resume. Now, if you want to pivot out of that, I would recommend taking, first of all, ChatGPT, take your current resume, Take your current resume, paste it into ChatGPT. Note to self, from operational security perspective, don't include personal information and be aware that the moment you put your resume in, it becomes public uh, space. Second of all, take a GRC analyst role or pen test role, whatever role it is you want, and put that in there and then tell ChatGPT, like, here's my resume, here's the job I want. Tell me what about my resume, what about my experience aligns to this role and tell me how it aligns. So you can start on like step five, like instead of starting like from scratch, like, oh, I'm rebooting my career, start from step five because ChatGPT will be like, oh, you've already done this. You've already done this. This applies here. And you're going to, A, you're going to feel great about yourself because you're like, oh, geez, I'm already closer than I thought. And then B, it'll align your thinking into what do I need to do to pivot into that role? And oh, by the way, you can leverage what ChatGPT has told you to sell yourself to a company as a GRC analyst or a pen tester or whatever. Yeah, it's interesting you brought up ChatGPT. Uh, one of the next questions I wanted to ask you was, uh, what kind of role you think AI is going to play in the cybersecurity job market over the next three to five years? Yeah, I think AI is going to be huge. I, I I saw somebody post this on social media, so regrettably I can't attribute it because I don't remember, but this is not my own thought. I saw someone post last night and they said that AI literacy is basically going to become a foundational skill. And and the way that they they sold it in my brain was like, remember when the internet came around? They're like, hey, listen, you're going to have to learn to use the internet in order to function in society. So if you're like an old timer who doesn't want to change because this is the way it's been, you're going to struggle. And then when Microsoft and uh, like Word and Excel came around, it was like for finance people, then you start putting it on your resume, like literally for you young people who are here, like this would be a skill you'd put on your resume that you can use Microsoft Excel. And now 
it's it's assumed you know how to use Excel and PowerPoint, right? So it's it's these like common fundamental skills that are just like common workplace literacy. And I believe what this original poster said, using AI is going to become a, 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 mi- a minimum required. Like you're not even going to put it on your resume because it's assumed when you get to work, you know how to use it. I think ChatGPT is incredibly powerful. I use it all the time for all sorts of different things. And um, it, it's just a force multiplier. It allows me or any cyber professional to be able to do their job faster, quicker, stronger. You know, obviously you have to check it. It does have less hallucinations now, but you always, I, I like to think of ChatGPT as like a first draft for anything, right? Like whether, and it's not just a first draft of like a document, right? So like, oh, write me a policy about whatever. Yeah, that's a fine first draft. But like, hey, I want to, I, I need a Python script that does this or write me a Sigma rule that does this, right? It's a perfect first draft that you can go in afterwards. And because I didn't spend an hour drafting it, I spent 30 seconds asking ChatGPT, I'm already able to accomplish more, move faster, have higher quality work products and deliverables. Um, yeah, so I think that's that's you know that's basically my thoughts on that. All right. Uh, so this is the last one I have for you. You may have answered part of it in your last answer there. Uh, it can be as wide or as narrow as you want. Do you have any predictions for the future of cybersecurity? Oh boy. Um, I don't. Wow, that's a great question. Um, well, okay, so. As much as we as defenders will use AI, threat actors are going to use AI. And I know there's been all sorts of like news pub out there of like worm GPT and like, you know, busted GPTs that can write malware and, you know, specially crafted social engineering phishing emails. But all it is, is another tool in the toolbox, like every other thing, like, um, cybersecurity, we have post-exploitation frameworks like Cobalt Strike, right? And Sliver, right? We have those for doing good things, but threat actors use them for bad things as well. So, you know, you had to expect this was going to happen. I just think it's going to accelerate the maturity and the capabilities of threat actors, uh, which is basically going to just escalate this cat and mouse game. Uh, But at the same time, if AI is that powerful as it appears to be, you can have AI scan, like just for an example, and I'm making this up in in this moment, scan Microsoft operating systems source code. We have the source code. There's tons of dead code in there. And say, hey, identify the software vulnerabilities in here. How do we fix them? Right? So you can harden software. You can harden systems way faster with higher or less prone to user error. So I, I think the adoption of AI in the threat actor space is going to increase I also, you know, I, I, you know, I have GRC is near and dear to my heart, Chris, but I think we're going to see a continued explosion in the adoption and normalization of GRC roles within businesses. Cause like right now, a lot of businesses, obviously, if they have an information security office, they have a CISO, which is in the GRC capability, and they usually have like a couple, but small and mid sized businesses where their IT team is matrixed with cyber responsibilities, they're usually more technical focus, right? It's like the network engineer is also responsible for the firewall rules and, you know, and IT endpoint people responsible for the EDR agent, but they're not cyber people. They're not doing the detection tuning, like you said, and and the noises and all that. So I think as more businesses realize that cybersecurity needs to be part of it, as insurance companies push down the edict that they will require it, as more businesses suffer ransomware attacks, they're going to turn and say, we need cybersecurity. And Basically, uh, a GRC analyst is going to be kind of that natural to me. 
it's not maybe the best solution for combating an immediate ransomware threat, but it is the solution that's the natural extension of the business to have a cybersecurity focused individual. So I'd like to see an explosion of GRC people. Awesome. Well, we'll uh, mark that one for the end of year recap we do and see how we're measuring up. <laughs> okay, yeah. good. I like it. Yeah. Uh, so thanks for being on the show, Jerry. It's always lovely to talk to you. Really appreciate you taking the time. And I think we produce a lot of good information for our listeners here. So, Heck yeah. Yeah. Look forward to uh, hearing it when it's produced. And you know, thank you for the opportunity, Chris. And love, love what you're doing with Lima Charlie. Okay. Thank you, sir. Take care. And that concludes this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.